Welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Kieran Paul, your host, and my guests today are Andrew Honor, managing partner of Greenbrook Communications, a specialist public relations firm focused on the investment industry, which represents more activists than anyone else in the UK, and Leod Maydar, managing partner of Gatemore Capital, a London-based investment firm that has an activist fund. First up is Greenbrook's Andrew Honor. He started the business in 2012, and today counts among his clients some of the UK's and US's leading activists. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to be involved. So when you founded the business, how were activists viewed and how much of a risk was it to start advising them? We set the company up actually specifically to advise on situations like this. And the reason why we took that view was because they were finding it very difficult to get advice because people didn't want to advise activists. I think if you ran a general communications business and you had big corporate clients, they would not let you do it. And so there was a real problem. And I think there was a sense of real nervousness about activism and about these sort of barbarians and what were they doing. And they saw sort of the old style, aggressive US activism, and they were worried about it and thought, what on earth is happening? It's not acceptable behavior. So there was a lot of nervousness about it. That's kind of one of the reasons why we set the business up, because we could see that holding companies properly to account by their owners is entirely proper and legitimate. And it didn't seem very sensible that they weren't getting the advice that they needed. But yes, it was a risk. There was a lot of nervousness about working for activists. And that's why a lot of people just wouldn't do it. So how does the UK market and media view activists now? And does it appreciate the spectrum of activism much more? It's changed a lot. I mean, in the early days, there was a very, very poor understanding about the different styles of activism. I think people took a default position that it was going to be super aggressive going on CNBC or whatever it would be and sort of hectoring companies. And that was a very significant problem because people really didn't have a proper understanding about the different styles of investment approach. But the media saw it as great entertainment. It's great fun. You know, it's good copy but they would be naturally quite sceptical. And that has changed very dramatically. I mean, we started working on early landmark campaigns with, you know, firms like Value Act. And for example, Value Act were not that well understood over, over here a few years back. That's totally changed. And now I think firms definitely have the benefit of the doubt, for sure. And if you explain what you're doing carefully, you will receive a pretty accepting audience. And that has changed a lot. People are willing to listen, they're willing to understand what you're proposing, and the the hostility mostly has dissipated. It's very sector-specific, and if you are looking to shake up a strategic industry or something that seems to be important for a certain country, then clearly there are more sensitivities there. But broadly speaking, there is a much better understanding with the financial media overall in terms of different types of activism, what people are trying to achieve and the legitimacy behind it. And it also links through into a general concern about how companies can be held to account and who are really probing companies in terms of governance and how they operate. If you look at you know, long-only 
institutional investors and you might have a manager that has to oversee hundreds of different stocks, it's just not really going to work. They can't spend the time really drilling down into those individual investments. And I think there's a broader understanding and appreciation that actors have the resources and can deploy significant effort in terms of making sure companies are executing a strategy that is the most sensible. So I think it's changed quite dramatically and all for the better. And over the two years leading up to 2020, we saw record numbers of activist campaigns by overseas activists and also record numbers of large cap campaigns. How do the largest British companies typically react when an activist shows up at their door? We've acted on over 25 separate campaigns to the start of 2020. So that's a massive number. Look, I still think you're not going to get the chairman of a company who suddenly an activist pops up with a disclosable position and says, oh my goodness, I'm so thrilled you're here. Congratulations, come in, show us your workings. It doesn't matter who it is. Fundamentally, they regard it as a pain and something they don't want and they'd rather they go away. So that still, as soon as an activist shows up on the share register or a letter goes in to the board, they will engage advisors, particularly if it's a public disclosed position. The company will be swamped with so-called activist defense advisors, swarming the company, all that sort of stuff. The larger the company, I think the more nuanced the reaction may well be. I think there is a difference in style and approach about how companies react, dependent to an extent on size and the liquidity of their shareholder base and so on. It will also depend on the board composition, have board executives experienced an activist situation before. Again, what is the type of activist that is making the approach? Are they long-term, constructive, consensual, or do they have a record that is more adversarial? So I think it will very much depend. But as a base case, you know, if you're a chairman or chief executive and an activist pops up, you will dust off the defence book and start to engage in that way. But it will, it will depend. It will depend. Do you think there is still a greater interest from the media in the US activists? The US activists have got such an amazing record. The record of activism and engaged shareholder work in the US is so much bigger. And you've got some absolutely extraordinary, iconic figures involved. And that makes great copy. And people look back at people's records and some of the really extraordinary campaigns that have taken place. So I think what happens is the size of the market, you've got these quite flamboyant, swashbuckling kind of individuals that head up some of these firms. And it's very exciting and very interesting. It's like sort of old school, hostile M&A. And in a world that is difficult and sometimes not now, but you know, pre-COVID crisis would have been a bit dull. This is where the glamour is. And so totally understandably, if you've got a very interesting figure arguing for shake-up of a business, that's very good copy, and understandably so, that financial media will want to report these very fully. And also the size of some of the US activists. They can run multiple campaigns. They can return to the marketplace with new invest positions on a more frequent basis. They tend to be more disclosed positions because of the size of their funds. So everything points in that direction that some of the large US firms will attract fairly significant attention. That's understandable. And what about the UK-based activists? Is that a more established set of players now, or are there a lot of one-off campaigns by non-traditional activists? Well, if you look at the data, the amount of campaigns that were sort of first-time campaigns is increasing all the time. So clearly, you've got the big established firms that are returning again and again. 
However, the trends that we are seeing is smaller firms running campaigns, some campaigns for the first time. So you're, you're getting a bit of both. What that clearly means is if you're a company, if you are approached by a big established European engaged investor or a big established US engaged investor, you will be able to carefully examine their investment track record. And it's very unlikely they will depart from their regular playbook. I think where you have issues is actually where the company is unable to assess the track record of the engaged investor because they just don't have the list of public campaigns. If it's a big company, they're smaller, maybe they're just not publicly disclosed positions. So I think it causes another level of complexity because the risk for misunderstanding could be higher. But we're seeing it in all directions. We're seeing campaigns from new European firms, from new US firms, from names that we've just not heard of because it's their first time into activism. So yes, you know, it's coming from both ends, established firms where people, I think, know where they stand and new firms where people don't. And in the US, we've seen a slight recovery in activism, whereas in the UK, the numbers still look quite low. How has COVID-19 affected activism in the UK? Since mid-March, there's been a pause on big public campaigns. But I think all of that now is restarting. So it's only been a momentary pause. In our experience, the situations involving smaller companies have continued. But the really big public ones, I think, have been, broadly speaking, have paused. And I think people are recalibrating what the most effective approach should be as the crisis continues, with the understanding that a lot of companies have a lot on their plate. And so actually getting the messaging right and the arguments right, where institutions are having to really go through their investment portfolios themselves and are under a lot of pressure. So I think you just have to recalibrate things. But we are experiencing campaigns you know, coming back and new situations coming on stream and so on. So it has only been a pause. And I think there is a frustration, I think, by some that companies being properly held to account by their owners should continue and companies should not feel that they don't have to have the same level of scrutiny because of the current crisis. And it's important for companies to continue to properly explain and justify what they're doing, even through the current situation. So therefore, are you anticipating a resumption of hostility soon? Or is there concern about the health of UK stocks or the appearance of agitating during a pandemic? I think people will be very careful to get the tone right. I wouldn't use that language that you just used. I think there will be lots of situations where companies may need further encouragement to execute a strategic plan that may be more necessary than ever. It is about getting the language right, the tone right, and the approach right. Are you going to see very adversarial public campaigns in this environment? I would have thought less so. But are engaged investors going to continue to want to advance what they think is very sensible for individual companies? Absolutely. It's just how you do it. So the fact that things aren't public doesn't mean that things aren't happening. And I think engaged investors will be very careful to get the tone right so they can exert an appropriate amount of pressure on a board to do things which are in the owner's interests. And you don't need to have a big public scrap for that. So it's how you execute the campaign will be as more important than ever. And finally, next year, 2021, what do you think activism will look like? Look, I think you're going to see a continuation of the themes that we saw before the crisis. Fundamentally, governance, a very strong ESG 
overlay into pretty much all activity and boards being continually encouraged to run their businesses in a more shareholder responsive way. So I don't think it's going to fundamentally shift the themes. I think the particularly governance and ESG themes are going to continue to be right up there in terms of agendas from engaged investors. Now on to Leod Maida. According to Activist Insight Online, Gatemore has publicly subjected six UK companies to activist demands and in 2017 won four board seats at DX Group in a settlement. So Leo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you said last year that this was a golden age for activist investing in the UK. What exactly did you mean by that? Yes, I do think it's the golden age of activism in the UK, and I think there are three factors that have converged to make it the golden age. One is the fact that we're in a very conducive environment for activists in the UK. You have very strong rule of law, and you have things like the UK Governance Code and the Takeover Panel, which create very you know, well-defined lane markers within which you have to operate to affect change, but you do know ways to affect change. And as a result of that, you have fairly uniform minority shareholder rights, and those tend to be fairly strong minority shareholder rights. So in general, you have a great environment for activists to operate. I think culturally, activism is becoming more accepted in the UK. It's not quite where the US is yet, but it's far ahead of continental Europe. So we're hitting just now that inflection point where activists can be very effective So that's one factor. The second is MIFID II, which is a new piece of regulation which has come into effect from January 2018. It served to really further dry up the amount of equity research that's coming out, especially on small cap companies, which is an area we tend to focus on. And so that is increasing kind of the information asymmetry. And we think of MIFID II as generally a double-edged sword. We think that on the one hand, it is creating more opportunities on the buy side. On the other hand, it's also making it more difficult to get companies re-rated once the good news starts to come out. But nonetheless, it is creating more dislocation in the market. And so for any kind of value-oriented investor, that's going to create some opportunity. And the third factor is, of course, Brexit, which I guess until this COVID crisis was our favorite subject to not want to talk about. But since Brexit, the UK has by and large been underweight in global equity allocations. You know, we think that as a result of that, there's a good amount of value in uh, many names across the UK. So you take those three factors and, and we do, in fact, think it's the golden age of activism in the UK. And how much then has that all changed this year with, of course, the effects of COVID-19? COVID-19, I think, changed the game across the board for everyone, but most likely temporarily. I mean, I think that, you know, in, in this environment, activists have to be very careful not to come across as tone deaf. I mean, if you are kind of in a more extreme example, working with a portfolio company, uh, say a retailer who's year-on-year sales are down 40 to 60%. If you spend time trying to convince fellow shareholders and and the board that some of the non-executive directors uh, aren't fully independent, that's probably not an issue that is front and center on people's mind, and you're probably not going to get much traction on that. So I think that right now, activists have to be engaged in the most pressing issues that will help support the company get through this very difficult period. So the playbook will have to change temporarily, but that's you know until we get back to normal whenever that is. And of course, you focus on UK small cap companies. And have you noticed then many differences between campaigns at larger and smaller companies? So 
yes, we do tend to focus on UK companies because we see many opportunities there. But I would just note that we do have investments in US companies. We recently announced a 6.5% position in a company called Polarity TE, which has a fascinating healthcare product. They had a number of governance and strategy issues earlier on. I think they're well past that and on the right track. So we're very enthusiastic about that position. But you know, whether you're talking about the US or UK, Yes, we do see differences between campaigns at larger and small companies. And there are two main differences, I would say. One is the nature of the shareholder base. So at larger companies, you're going to have more distributed shareholder base, more, say, passive funds invested uh, towards the top of the shareholder registry. And you'll have a larger number of large, long-only funds that are you know, owning the top you know, 30, 40 percentage points of the company. And so as a result of that, large campaigns are going to focus more on engaging proxy advisors and focusing on how to win over you know, the votes in a, in a proxy contest. Whereas you know, in smaller companies, by the time you're going to a shareholder vote, by and large, you should know where you stand. So you will find more often things getting settled with smaller companies behind the scenes rather than through you know, a proxy contest. Second, I would say, is the fact that larger companies have more resources and will, by and large, uh, tend to engage advisors more quickly than smaller companies. I think there's a misconception out there that activists don't like their portfolio companies engaging advisors. I think for us, that's not true, at least. We would rather there be a war of ideas than a war of personalities, and we want the best ideas to win, not necessarily our ideas. We won't promote anything unless we think it's right, but we're open-minded to know that the board has uh, a lot more information than we do on a lot of topics. And uh, if they engage the right advisors, then hopefully that'll lead them to the right conclusion. And so we do see larger companies invest more in that front and as a result tend to have better, higher quality advice. Uh, which is another key difference between the two. And M&A has been a feature of activism in the UK. What would you say are some of the common strategies you feel companies fail to consider? Yeah, M&A is a common strategy, and I think that it'll continue to be a very important strategy. You know, I would note that even in this environment, we're getting some M&A done a year ago. We took a 10% stake in a company called Moss Bros, which is a high street suit retailer. And we worked behind the scenes with the board and management to convince them that the company should be taken private and that it would operate more efficiently and better as a private company. And lo and behold, in March, a bidder emerged and a deal was agreed. That bidder, as it turns out, tried to get out of the deal and appeal to the takeover panel, but was rejected by the takeover panel and, and had to consummate the deal. So we're expecting that to close any day now. So even in this tough environment, you're seeing M&A, but certainly you're going to see less of that for some period of time. Having said that, we tend to find that companies are quite resistant to changes which require downsizing. So if we engage with a board or management and talk to them about selling, say, a division, selling a major division of the business, there tends to be a knee-jerk reaction to say no, even if that division is quite distinct from the other division, and you can really question the strategy of why are they under the same roof, inertia comes into play. And CEOs and, and advisors, you know, I think tend to believe that they will get compensated more for running and advising a big company rather than a small one. And so unfortunately, those motivations come into play. And so we often find that it's difficult to convince companies to divest of major assets when even if that will very obviously help them unlock value. 
So when do you think M&A will be a viable option again? Anybody's guess, but we know that because it's very dependent on the trajectory of this health crisis. But the things that need to happen, I think, for M&A to become uh, an important part of the toolkit again is, first of all, for private equity firms to start buying again because they're very important players in, in the take private market. Uh, and for that to happen, we need to see banks lending to private equity. So there's a bit of a chain effect. By our guess, we think that by the end of, say, this calendar year, we could see M&A start to pick up again. But you know, who knows? That, that could take a little while longer. And finally, you've mentioned that growth companies could be a new target of activism. Could you just expand on that? Yes. In fact, we are focusing on growth companies ourselves. I mentioned uh, the company Polarity TE, which is based in the U.S. In the U.K., there's a company called Sensign, which is a healthcare AI company, which is doing some fascinating work. They had a number of governance missteps early on, but we think they're back on track and they have a very bright future. So we're more and more looking for those kinds of opportunities where we can engage on the governance side to help growth companies kind of get back on track. Having said that, the reason why you, you might see a bit of a shift towards growth is simply because we think the recovery following this health crisis is going to be likely long and slow. And as a result of that, you're going to see kind of the traditional stomping grounds for activists tend to be value-oriented companies. And I think you're going to see those companies struggle to get their earnings growth back on track. Activists are going to have to assess where can my energies be best used and help a company grow its profitability or unlock value. You know, there are companies like DX Group, one of our portfolio companies, we own 35% of it. It's gone through a tremendous turnaround, but it's kind of now past the point of turnaround and we expect earnings to grow two to three times over the next few years. So they already have the wind at their back, but few companies in you know, the traditional value sphere are already on that kind of trajectory. And so as a result of that, I think you will just naturally see investors go towards the areas where their energies will have the best result. That's all for this episode of the Activist Insight podcast. Earlier this month, we released a podcast accompanying the May issue of Activist Insight Monthly. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to a variety of news and data services by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. Non-subscribers can still access special reports on shareholder activism in Japan, the impact of COVID-19 on activism, and much, much more at activistinsight.com forward slash reports. For comments or questions about the podcast, or if you want something discussed on a future edition, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast as well on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.